Hello and welcome to the latest episode of EM Insider with me and Raphael Cassin. Raphael, how are you doing? Hey Chris, how are you? Nice to be here, man. Good. It's been about six weeks since we last caught up. A lot has happened in the world. I've just actually started editing your recent submission for our October magazine, where one of the main focal points is about the Goldilocks scenario. So can you just bring people up to speed? What do you mean by that? Are we in a Goldilocks scenario and how long is that likely to last? Well, look, I think it's it's really interesting. I, I, I suddenly came up to the realization the other day that uh, we're going to have, and, and maybe it was a little late, but we're going to have central bankers coming in with lots of juice for a long time. Um, we, you know, we were talking about having a second wave and then there are new packages, uh, support packages, you know, European Union still trying to figure out where the heads are. Um, so it, it looks like that is going to, provide a nice impetus for interest rates to remain low uh, and support to continue. And as a result, we go back to the Goldilocks scenario where interest rates stay low for a while and and emerging market bonds look extremely attractive on a global allocation environment, right? So, you know, you look at your sharp sharp ratios and, and your efficient frontiers and and you, you, you cannot avoid putting emerging bonds in your portfolio. I mean, look at the performance we've had this year. Uh, on the hard currency side, uh, both sovereign and corporates have put up a return of about two to four percent, two to three and a half. I think we could go probably to seven or eight. I, I continue to be negative on local, local currency. Uh, but I think on the hard currency side, you know, Goldilocks is the way to go. And the only way it could go wrong is if the local economies uh, get to a point at which they're so weak that they that their fiscal accounts uh, explode uh, and they come back and say they can't pay. But even in that scenario, we have already had three defaults, three sovereign defaults this year. Uh, we've had Argentina, we had Ecuador and Lebanon, and two of them have been resolved in record time. Uh, on the corporate side, we've been running below the average. So if we extrapolate that to, towards year end, I mean, you can imagine that we could easily have another few percent of return. And, and that would put us, uh, us I mean, you know, sovereign and, and corporate hard currency emerging uh, at a pretty acceptable performance level for the year. If you look at, you know, the U.S. equities, it's there, you know, they're, they're, a little bit behind that. Is that a surprise? Were you shocked with everything that happened with COVID that it did lead to this scenario where we're looking at the end of the year and it could be a lot more positive? Yes, I am a little bit surprised. Uh, I am surprised, as I mentioned to you, with the speed with which a couple of the faults were dealt with. But I'm also surprised that a lot of countries didn't, a lot more countries didn't go bust, if I could use that word. Um, one, one curious uh, example was uh, in Africa. You know, people, as soon as things started, started uh, downplaying Africa, saying it was, was going to be a disaster and, and people would be dropping off on, off on the streets. Uh, and I think that there was enough multilateral support, uh, you know, and, and that helped. Uh, and I think maybe things weren't that bad uh, and they managed to, to pull it through. Uh, so, I, yeah, I am surprised. And, I'm, of course, I'm happy. With that, we, we've talked about uh, this at length, but Argentina, 
and Ecuador have gone through these restructurings. And you mentioned something really interesting before we came on the call was how people might have played these. And I understand you've also been involved in buying bonds before the restructuring and during the restructuring. Can you just expand on that? Because you talked about the, the, the ethics and the, the ESG element around that. Well, yeah, I think we are in a new world, right? People are super concerned these days about ESG and, and I guess the moral aspect of your investment. Well, I think if you, if you start doing a little review of most of your emerging countries, most of them are going to have significant issues. And so you might actually end up getting to the point in which you say, well, I'm not going to invest in any emerging market country. But then, I mean, you might not invest in, you might not invest in the UK because you might not like the way the government runs things. You know, I, I mean, it, it, I'm, I'm not saying that that's my case, but uh, I think that, you know, it, it can go to extremes. But but let's talk about the way people have been uh, these these countries and, and investors have been dealing with restructurings over the last few years or decades. Right. In the old days, you would have hundreds of investors, thousands of investors, uh, private bankers in Lugano who had positions in Argentina and Ecuador, for example, um, who would participate in the restructuring discussing their uh, bringing their opinion sharing their views on how the restructuring should be and and having a, a real vote on things and these people bought bonds at par now these last two restructurings that we've seen they were uh, basically lightning speed argentina came up with a proposal uh and okay it took a little bit longer than ecuador's but it was it was quite quick i mean i would argue that the argentinians didn't need to restructure and the only reason they were forced, quote unquote, to restructure was that investors perceived their government as inept. And as a result, bond prices dropped. And then the government said, well, you know, guess what? Since bond prices have dropped, why don't I take an opportunity to, to take a swipe at investors and, and reduce our country's debt? And by the way, look good in front of investors. But I, I would argue the Argentines could have come up with an intelligent fiscal plan uh, that would have worked and, and let's say bitten the bullet rather than, than having done this. But, you know, coming back to, to, to the main road, um, they and the Argentinians presented, uh, these, these packages. The, the Ecuadorians, uh, in comparison to the Argentines, gentlemanly behavior, you know, they came up with a deal that was quite attractive. But in, in, in and that's why you see, you know, a 10% exit yield, uh, bonds are trading, people are happy. Um, and, and probably Ecuador will be able to finance much more easily than Argentina in the future, I believe, because of that. But the important point here that, that I pulled out of these two restructurings was that while in the old days you'd have this private banker in Lugano and, and negotiations would go on for a while, and at some point you might have even uh, 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 vulture funds get involved. You know, So at some point you would have... Uh, an agreement that that might not be the best for the sovereign, but it was good for everybody, right? But with these two restructurings, investors were basically put against the wall with a shotgun in their heads and said and told, "You have to accept it." Uh, you know, we have COVID. Why? You know, we have to get this deal done. Now, the big difference between the old days and now is that these creditor committees were made up of very few players. And interestingly, the decisions were made very quickly 
uh, with very, I would say, substantial haircuts, especially in the Argentinian case. Um, now, my view, and, and, and by the way, in the Ecuadorian case, even though I've mentioned it was a uh, gentleman's agreement, the Ecuadorians are paying half a percent for the first year on their interest. While I have bonds uh, that I, I have, I've had that were paying over nine and a half percent coupon before. So we're talking about a five percent coupon compared to where, what it was before. So, so okay, in the longer uh, years, in the later years, they they have obviously stepped up and coupons will be higher. But, but you know, they the Ecuadorians have come out really nicely in this. And here's an interesting, the interesting point that I, I try, I'm trying to bring up, you know, with long conversation. It's that the decision making was made by very few players this time. And I think these players probably bought a lot of bonds after the default or after things collapsed. And, and in a world of ESG, at some point, uh, we have to start differentiating between vulture purchases and real investor purchases. And the reason is very simple. If I bought a bond at par, which, by the way, in the Ecuadorian case, I had, um, should I have more rights than the institutional investor who had more bullets to play with and eventually bought bonds at 40 or 43 you know, I think was the low, I, I can't remember, in Ecuador. Um, which, by, by the way, I also ended up buying bonds at around 50. So, I, you know, I, I happen to be in a strange position. Um, but, you know, should I, with my 100, my par purchase, get more voting rights than the guy who bought it at 50 once a restructuring had been announced? Right. And I think this is going to be an important point for the future, because if people are buying at 50 and their vote is counting the same way, even though a restructuring was announced, well, that starts tilting the power to some people who might make decisions that will, will be, uh, let's say, that, that they will accept more of a loss, right? And, and that may not be very interesting uh, for, for the overall retail community. Has this ever been in any way assessed before? Because I know we talked about before this call, the vulture funds coming into Argentina when that was being done, that wasn't this restructuring, that was the previous one. And there were some big hedge funds involved in uh, holding out for payments from defaults from many years ago. But has there any ever been any way of addressing this that you know of? Have people looked at it and said, this isn't right, you shouldn't have the same amount of voting power if you bought in the middle of a major upheaval? I've been hearing about this from day one, and I have to be honest about this, I actually was against the vulture funds for a long time. And I still am, um, because I think at the end of the day, there has to be a time period in which when a restructuring starts to be discussed and negotiated, a deal has to be made. So, you know, at some point the, the chairs have to, you know, the, the music will end and, the, and you have to sit on the chairs. but. But the question is, should you do it after the second note or after the whole music has played, right? And, and so I think in, there, have, there has been criticism of the vulture investors for a long time. I happen to be this time on, on the side in which I, I've seen both sides. So I find it interesting, you know, and, and very, very interesting, Chris. I mean, the negotiations were too quick. 
You know, you could never have involved a lot of people in this. You could have involved a lot of volume. Uh, but I think that the, the approach of the retail investor this time was, mm, we're having COVID. I have no cash flow. I don't really want to stick around for 10 years waiting for a deal. So if these guys have managed to sit with the Ecuadorians and the Argentines, and they've been able to pull a deal in which, wow, these guys will actually pay, uh, restructure and pay, uh, then I think people have agreed to go along with it. But talking to a lot of retail investors, uh, I get the feeling that they're not too excited about the terms of the deals. I mean, you know, it's, it, they could have been better. And I think that's the issue. I think at some point, EMTA should probably start dealing with the timing of purchases. Because if we look at the Elliott case in Argentina, um, they ended up getting a pretty substantial payoff in the end. So for the other guys who, who agreed to a deal at first, uh, they, you know, they did so much better that you might ask yourself, well, is it fair? Okay, they've put some money on lawyer's fees and all of that. They've waited for many years um, to, you know, to get you know, with a carry, having a negative carry. But, but you've got to ask yourself that at some point. And I think we are getting to that point. It's a really interesting point. I think there's going to be a lot more done around that and when we were talking about the vulture funds before of course elliot comes up as a huge example because i remember there was that issue of them impounding an argentinian naval vessel as well to really make their point and that really pushed that idea that they were preying on the country to an extent and so it'd be interesting to see if anything is ever done about when people come in and how they operate as well well i believe that they should do these uh, use these tactics okay but I believe that if they get anything out of the tactics, there should be an equitable distribution amongst them and other holders. Meaning, whatever they get, of course, they will, they will share the costs that they've had in getting that, but they should also share the benefits. Of course. Well, moving slightly away from that, because um, it's a fascinating area and I think there's lots, much more to do on there. But I was interested also to get your view on some of the other countries and how they're coming along. We've, in your column this month, you've talked about Turkey, you talk about Lebanon, Lebanon, you talk about Belarus. Could you just expand on, on where they are and whether they're actually interesting for you as an investor? Yeah, well, actually, there's one more interesting point on this restructuring issue. Uh, I got some news yesterday. Uh, that the Venezuelans have raised, you know, raised a, a flag, a, a white flag, and and mentioned that they are interested in having discussions with bondholders, um, especially considering, quote unquote, the fact that uh, there will be uh, uh, the three-year default pretty soon, uh, and some people believe that that three years is where the statute of limitations uh, comes through. Uh, actually, sorry, not the statute of limitations, the limitations on the on the prospectus of a few of the bonds. Um, I've read interesting points about both, both uh, approaches. Um, one approach says that you have to, you know, what, what it says on the, on the prospectus in legal terms does not mean that in November this year, uh, your coupon will be basically ignored if you don't sue them. Uh, and I've, you know, I've talked to lawyers about this, so I'm, I'm, pretty comfortable that they know what they're talking about. Um, but then there are a few guys out there who are trying to push you to buy funds uh, that supposedly are going to uh, be used to, to fight against the Venezuelans. 
who are saying, well, you know, in three years, if you don't sue them in three years, you, you lose your interest. Now, I think that that's not going to be the, the marking point, but please don't quote me on that. I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but, but I've heard from a uh, you know, significant number of lawyers that that's the case. What will probably happen is that they'll have the New York law uh, uh, statute of limitations, which does kick in, in six, uh, after six years. So we supposedly have a little bit more time. But it looks like the Venezuelans are trying to play with that and have discussions with people. So we'll have to keep that space open because I think from now until November, a lot of conversations will start taking place. And it's constructive, but you know, it's another one of these cases in which you were expecting something to happen one day and it may be that it happens in the next quarter. So yeah, that's Venezuela, right? Let's put that out of, you know, in the back burner for now. Um, you brought up, uh, you know, my comments on Turkey. Well, I have been hearing for years that Turkey has no problems in, in funding, uh, that they have a close relationship with the European Union, um, and that everything will be fine. I've even heard that the lira, you know, was going to recover to four uh, with the dollar. Uh, but unfortunately, that's not happening. Uh, uh, the president is not really market friendly. And as a result, we're seeing discussions between him and, and people in the economy ministry um, and, and issues about whether interest rates should be higher or lower in order to fight inflation. I mean, things that, that are interesting from a, an economics point of view, because some of them are not logical. Um, and what's been happening with Turkey is that the currency has been blowing up. And the relationship with the EU is not that great. I mean, we're talking about uh, warships in the in the Mediterranean and and issues with who's going to be able to get gas or oil. So I, I think that we're entering an interesting phase for Turkey. Um, and I, I I'm not saying that Turkey will default, uh, but I'm believing, like I think most of the market. Uh, that they have to be a little bit careful on the fiscal front uh, because if they let it slip, it might be that, that they don't get very attractive rates in the future. So it might become costly for them to finance their foreign debt. Um, so I, I would say, you know, I would keep an eye on Turkey. I, I'd say that. One final point, Raphael, then to round out, and it's probably a bigger one than than a few minutes, but Belarus. We've seen a lot of headlines. We've seen a lot of protests. We've seen a lot of outrage and anguish. What does that actually mean from an investment perspective? I think nothing. Uh, you know, I, I remember when Putin came into power, when Yeltsin passed power on to him, uh, people were all worried. And, and then over the years, Putin uh, had a, a pretty centric approach to government uh, and people didn't like that. and Okay, I don't want to bring that into an ESG uh, discussion, but I think that he's been managing the economy in a comfortable way. Um, okay, there are discussions about Navalny and, and these things, and okay, that's that's all valid. But um, but I think in in the Belarusian case, uh, Lukashenko is going to somehow get a deal with Putin uh, because Belarus is important for the Russians. Uh, from a strategic point of view, historic. So I think at some point there there will be enough support, and and I can understand why people want to have another orange revolution there, but I think it will be more difficult. So I've seen bonds drop a little bit; they've then come back up, and I imagine 
that's that's basically all the noise we're going to see there. If you would let me just touch upon one interesting point, I would say, you know, I think that Lebanon requires a lot of attention these days. Maybe the international, the IMF, international community uh, has to start looking at ways to de- of dealing with them because they're not sorting their political problems out. And, and you know, it's, it's, it would be important to deal with that before it's too late. Perfect. Raphael, as always, thank you very much. It's covered a huge amount of ground in a short space of time. It's always appreciate your time and your insights. And I look forward to speaking to you uh, next time on EM Insider. It's always a pleasure, Chris. Thanks very much, Tua.